Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining us today. I have got a great show for you full of all kinds of brain health information. I've got Dr. Michael Greger. He's a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He's an MD. He's a physician, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, and the brain is only as good as what you feed it. His science-based nonprofit, nutritionfacts.org, offers a free online portal hosting more than 2,000 videos and articles, and they are there's a wealth of information on that website. I can't encourage our listeners to write that down, nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Greger is a sought-after lecturer, and he's presented at the Conference on World Affairs in the World Bank, testified before Congress, and was invited as an expert witness in Oprah Winfrey's defense in the infamous meat defamation trial. He's a graduate of Cornell University School of Architecture and Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Greger is an acclaimed author, How Not to Die, the How Not to Die cookbook, and the How Not to Die became instant New York Times bestsellers. Now more than a million copies of How Not to Die have been sold. And he has a new book that we'll talk about at the end, How Not to Age, which I'm really interested in. All proceeds that Dr. Greger receives from the sale of his books and speaking are donated directly to a charity. Dr. Greger, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you know, it's summer, and now all the kids that were in school are out of school, and whoops, there goes the sleep schedules. Those are gone mm-hmm. And I've already had a a few conversations about how important sleep is for the brain. I'd really like to get your insight on sleep and the brain. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, all comes back to the discovery in uh, 2012 of a, of a, of a, a brain wide fluid transport network. Um, that uh, that that uh, allows the brain to detoxify itself, and this is only active at night. And so, uh, if we uh, so if we don't get enough sleep, we our brain isn't allowed to uh, get rid of the toxins it builds up throughout the day. We used to think the brain was singular among organs and recycling all its own weight. Uh, because it was separated from the rest of the body with the blood-brain barrier, but by uh, by microscopically tracking dye injected in the brains of mice, scientists discovered these fluid-filled tunnels uh, that are active at night that uh, that carry waste away. Um, and uh, and more recently, um, in the 2020, we uh, found those same that same detoxification pathway active in humans as well. So what I tell the people at the Brain Performance Center is all day long, those neurons and dendrites are wiring and firing, and they're working hard. The only time that the brain gets a chance to revitalize itself is when they're, when they're asleep. So it's really important to get that sleep. And then we'll, we'll go into the age-old argument of how much sleep do I need. 
And it might, the only place I find that I ever make a point is how do you feel when you wake up? Are you rested? Are you tired? Please give us some insight on how much, what's a sweet spot for sleep? Sure. Well, um, uh, seven hours appears to be necessary. Um, those getting fewer than seven hours of sleep have increased risk of developing cognitive disorders such as dementia. In fact, you can, you know, randomize people to have their sleep disrupted by a series of beeps administered through headphones in a sleep lab. And you can increase the level of these amyloid plaque and tangle proteins in their brain, which are characteristic pathology associated with Alzheimer's disease. Whereas improving sleep, like if uh, you, know, you treat sleep apnea patients with CPAP therapy or something, you can significantly lower levels. PET scans show that even a single all-nighter can cause a significant increase in the, in the accumulation of this amyloid beta uh, protein, this Alzheimer's protein in critical brain areas. Um, and so that's why, particularly as we get older, um, this glymphatic brain filtration appears to decline with aging that actually may be a consequence of us getting less slow brain wave, which is called stage three sleep. And that's when the brain waste clearance appears to be most active. Um, and our brains also get more stagnant. Our, 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 our arteries become stiffened as we get age, as we, as we get older, which is why hypertension, high blood pressure is tied to dementia as well. We have the stiffening of artery walls. That has a stiffening effect, but we can counter this age-related glymphatic decline uh, by getting sufficient sleep and boosting glymphatic flow uh, by exercising. Um, we don't have uh, uh, human data yet, but pr the provision of a running wheel to mice so they can voluntarily exercise has been shown to improve this brain toxin clearing in, uh, in aging mice. So there is a difference. If you're only getting five and a half or six hours of sleep a night, that's a big difference than seven hours, right? That appears to be the cutoff. appears to be uh, appears to be seven. You know, the, the problem with linking dementia um, and sleep duration is it can be there's the concern about reverse causation, where profound kind of prodromal changes in the brain years before Alzheimer's is even diagnosed can cause changes in sleeping patterns. So you don't know kind of uh, which came first. Um, uh, but, uh, but the sweet spot does seem to be seven to eight hours. Well, that's good to know because a lot of times people will, it doesn't matter if they sleep seven hours. It doesn't matter if they sleep nine hours, they still wake up and they're exhausted. And I've often wondered, I mean, for me personally, too much sleep is not good for me there. But for a lot of people, they say that their body demands it is too much sleep equivalent to not enough sleep? Yeah, yeah, actually. So, I mean, if you look at longevity, for example, there's actually the, the people who live, who, who, who sleep longer than nine hours a night actually live shorter lives than not only those who get seven to eight hours, but shorter than those getting less than seven hours. So in that way, it's, it would seem worse to sleep excess than to sleep too little. Um, again, uh, those are, these are difficult questions to tease out because all we have is this observational evidence where people who sleep longer uh, tend to have higher rates of disease and live shorter lives. But maybe it's those higher rates of disease that, live that lead people to sleep longer and not the other way around. But for the people who are getting enough sleep, 
but just not seeming to get enough restful sleep. Um, I think it's important to, you know, learn about, you know, sleep hygiene, hygiene rules, making the bedroom dark, cool, comfortable, quiet, um, uh, you know, making sure that you're not drinking coffee um, uh, uh, and second half of the day, late afternoon uh, alcohol consumption, even six hours before bedtime can impair sleep. Um, nicotine uh, has negative sleep effects as well. So there's a lot of things one can do to improve one's sleep regimen to, you know, it's not just the number of hours you're lying in, lying horizontally, it's getting that quality sleep. Well, and you talked about a a lot of those lifestyle choices that sometimes can be difficult for us to make. You know, I look at at the brain having really two pillars. One is sleep and the other is nutrition. And I can't tell you how many times I get asked the question, well, what is brain food? What should I eat? Should I be eating plant-based? And you're an expert on that. So talk to us about brain food. Yeah, and I would add another pillar um, to your sleep and diet, and that is exercise. Ah. Um, uh, it's, it's aerobic exercise is important to uh, is important to brain health. But uh, in terms of one's diet, there's actually the development of the so-called mind diet, um, which was uh, developed specifically devised to kind of protect the brain by research at the Russian University Medical Center. Um, and so this is kind of a uh, a combination kind of Mediterranean plus kind of the DASH diet with an emphasis. So basically, we're, we're cutting down on junk foods, cutting down on saturated fats, sweets, meat, um, and really emphasizing um, uh, fruits, vegetables, particularly berries, particularly leafy vegetables, as well as beans and nuts. Um, and so we're emphasizing natural uh, plant-derived foods, but specifically concentrating on berries every day, green leafy vegetables every day, and cutting down on some of the processed and animal foods. That's really uh, that that was that was based on all the research done to date. And there have been about a dozen studies using the so-called Mind Diet, and found that those who are adhering more um, towards the diet were associated with significantly improved global cognitive function. Um, and, uh, and as well as low risk of, of, of dying. Um, currently, there's a large multi-center three-year randomized controlled trial um, uh, looking at uh, whether or not it's actually pre- going to prevent dementia, um, and we should have those results soon. Well, it, it's I'm very happy that you mentioned processed food because the only advice that I really give is to try to stay, if it comes in a bag, a box, or a can, and it's going to be good for a year or two. There are things in there that are not good for your body. And but that's the hardest thing for people to give up are, are the processed foods. And what would you say processed foods? I mean, is it more of a neurological impact? Is it a biological? Does it affect you physically and mentally? You know, um, the reason why it's so hard to give up processed food is because they were deliberately engineered that way, right? I mean, so you take food scientists, you sit them down in the lab, and you want to create like a you know potato chip where you just can't eat one because you want to make as much profit as possible. So what you do is you tap into a key ancestral biological drives. You know, when we 
you know, our ancient ancestors didn't have access to salt shakers. And so salt was at a premium. We had this, this desperate need, craving for salt. Now, of course, the processed food industry uses that craving for salt by putting a lot of salt in foods, but now we're getting too much salt and it's harmful. The same thing with caloric density. Um, we, you know, we, we basically um, arrived here in the context of starvation for most of uh, human history. Um, and so we were constantly seeking out the most calorie dense foods, uh, sugary, fatty foods, um, where we can get more cal kind of caloric bane for our bucks so we don't starve. Now, of course, now the food industry says, oh, we can do that. We can have, you know, fatty, salty, and sugary foods. Um, and so now in the context of the obesity epidemic, that really works against us. And we're actually eating too many calories. But the food, the processed food industry uh, cares less about public health and more about you know, the quarterly returns of stockholders. They need that short-term profit. And you're absolutely right. The way to make short-term profit is you sell these processed foods that can, you know, a snack cake that can sit on the shelf for a few months, whereas the healthiest foods, like in the produce aisle, fresh fruits and vegetables, they go bad. It's like the worst thing to sell. Uh, they, I mean, uh, you know, you can't even brand items. That's why I've never seen an ad for sweet potatoes on the Super Bowl. I mean, because you'll just buy your, your competitor's sweet potato. Like, it's just, it's the worst thing, <laughs> it's the worst thing to sell if you want to make money. Um, and so there's these natural perverse incentives set up where the unhealthiest stuff, which is, you know, brown sugar water, which basically costs nothing to make because we taxpayers subsidize the sugar industry. So it's pennies for what actually goes into it. And they sell for a couple bucks a bottle. Like it's like pure profit. And so it's not like you know, these corporations want to make people sick. They just want to make people money. And the money is not in apples and cabbages and broccoli. The, uh, the money is in you know uh, you know junk basically uh, that's very cheap, very non-perishable, and really taps into those kind of deep biological drives. Um, and uh, so we really have to kind of go out of our way to reclaim our health and fight against this tide because we're just bombarded by this fast food messaging, this junk food messaging, messaging everywhere we turn because there's so much money to be made. Well, it, and you were referring to a four-letter four word, that brown stuff, that soda. That, exactly. That is the one thing that I, I have two boys, now they're grown, but that was the one thing that I was willing to stick my stick in the dirt on. We are not going to drink a lot of soda. And it's there's is there anything good good for anybody in soda? Uh, well, I mean, if you're if you're, I guess if you're dying of dehydration somewhere, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm right. So and it's not just the sugar. Um, it's not just these free uh, sugars. Not just empty calories. Um, but you know they they have the phosphate additives. Uh, to, to maintain that brown color. Otherwise, cola would turn black. And those phosphate additives are toxic for your kidneys. Um, there's, uh, you know, in diet sodas have a range of artificial sweeteners that have been associated with uh, numerous adverse effects. So it's really, I mean, the healthiest thing to drink is water, bar none, absolutely. And then um, beyond water, um, uh, black coffee, green tea, um, hibiscus tea, which is a type of herbal tea, 
um, uh, are all healthy options, but really we should center our beverage choices around water. Well, and the brain only weighs three pounds and it's 60% water. So if you're not keeping it hydrated, how well do you think it's going to work for you? Not very well. And it's, it's so interesting to me because I talk hydration all day long. And I know when my body's getting dehydrated, I'll get cramps in my calves. But when I talk to, you know, clients about drinking water, they're like, oh, I, I, I drink probably six or seven cups of coffee a day. And like, that's dehydrating. No, coffee's got water in it. That's dehydrating. So I think that as easy as it sounds to just drink water, it can be a lot harder for some folks. Yeah, well, so yes, caffeine uh, in is a uh, diuretic. I should make you pee out excess water, but uh, but because but it doesn't drinking a cup of coffee doesn't have enough caffeine that you lose more than a cup of fluid. So it doesn't actively dehydrate you, but you are getting less fluid than you think. You aren't actually getting that full cup. Um, uh, by drinking a caffeinated beverage as opposed to a decaf beverage. Well, for our listeners out there, if you'll just if you'll just double the amount of water that you're drinking today, if you're drinking one glass of water a day, drink two. If you're drinking two, drink four. If you'll just double the amount of water that you're drinking today, you're you'll be healthier for it. That's for sure. And it, Dr. Greger, thank you for mentioning that third pillar, and that's exercise, because that is something that's just so ingrained in me. That's my everyday routine that sometimes I don't acknowledge the importance of it and, and that it has. So let's talk about exercise. Yeah, no, no, uh, particularly in relation to brain health, um, there. Uh, um, there's a great deal of data uh, supporting particularly aerobic exercise. Um, in, uh, it improves brain function, both clear thinking and co- both in clear thinking and cognitively impaired individuals. We think it's because it boosts something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is boosted by aerobic exercise. can also be boosted by meditation, caloric restriction, reducing saturated fat intake, eating, eating high flavonoid rich um, uh, foods like fruits and vegetables and, uh, and, uh, and the, the, the grain known as rye. Um, uh, but so that's where we, that's what we think is going on. And so you can actually, if you take cognitively impaired individuals and randomize them uh, to six months of either aerobic exercise or a control group, some like just like stretching exercises or something, um, you can get a significant improvement, not just a leveling out so that they they slows down the rate at which their brain function declines, but actually get an improvement in brain function at the end of six weeks while the control group, not doing extra exercise, uh, continues to decline. So it's one of the few things that can uh, reverse age-related cognitive decline, aerobic exercise. So it's critically important. Um, to, to get enough. The, the official federal recommendations are 150 minutes a week of uh, moderate exercise comes out to be about 20 minutes a day, moderate intensity, or 75 uh, minutes a week of vigorous exercise. Um, now, that's not actually what the evidence shows. A very 
they're very uh, uh, I mean, explicit that this is a compromise between the ideal amount of exercise and how much, you know, they don't want to like scare people and, and have people just kind of throw up their hands and not do any. So they're very careful to say, look, any exercise is better than nothing. Um, but, you know, evidence does show um, uh, the more exercise you do, the better. Um, uh, and the, the benefits appear to plateau at about 90 minutes a day, nine zero minutes a day of moderate activity or 45 minutes of vigorous activity. Um, and so that's where you can get the maximum benefit um, seven days a week. Uh, but again, that's ideal. Any amount of exercise we can do is better than nothing. So, you know, we talk about it has to be cardiovascular. Is what does walking count it, for everybody's got Absolutely. a dog? Absolutely. Absolutely. Walking is such a great exercise. It's safe. Anybody can do it. Um, well, it's safe if you're not walking with your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, don't wear your cell phone. And if you're walking in traffic with no uh, uh, sidewalks, you want to walk against traffic, not with traffic. Uh, but in general, walking is very safe. It's only about uh, one injury reported in a thousand hours of walking. That's that's the lowest of any exercise. You say there's more uh, people get more injured themselves with more with you know yoga, and tai chi, everything. So walking is an excellent exercise, um, and that's what actually most of these uh, the research that's been done in the cognitive sphere, uh, the intervention that they use, the exercise intervention, was walking because that's the kind of thing anyone can do. I mean, you can't randomize people to jog because what if you get people who don't, who can't jog? So you need to have an exercise that basically anybody can do and walking definitely fits the bill. Well, and, and you'll get healthier if you've got a pet, your dog will get healthier. It'd be a good thing for the uh, whole yeah. family. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know, my only uh, you know, uh, uh, caveat would be, you know, if it's inclement weather, you know, we really want to we worry about ice because we worry about falling, falling, breaking a hip. If you have a large breed dog, you know, it's important that they're trained not to not to pull. Um, uh, but yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, walking is fantastic. Take a friend, you know, listen to a to a, an audio book or a podcast or, you know, um, there's lots of ways to make it a joyful experience. Go out in nature. You know, this is the time of year here in the northern hemisphere where it's just uh, gorgeous outside. Well, and and you're absolutely right. Listen to a podcast. Listen to In Your Head with Lee Richardson. There you go. <laughs> well, it's it is it's important. The brain needs to move. The body needs to move. It's, I think it's really important that everybody recognize you can you can just go for a walk. I actually heard that walking improves your balance. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. And now that's not enough. We really want older um, individuals to have specific balance training exercise in addition to walking. But uh, but yes, walking does indeed help maintain your balance. Um, but there's specific kind of lower limb strengthening exercises and balance training exercises that are really critically important for protecting your bones. You know, it's a, you know, we hear a lot about bone mineral density because there's a big bone mineral density testing industry out there and a big, and the big pharma has drugs that improve bone mineral density, but 85% of bone fracture risk has nothing to do with the density of your bones. Uh, even fragile bones don't break just spontaneously. It has to do with falling. 
So preventing 85% of, uh, of osteoporotic fractures is all about preventing falls. And so there's lots of things you can do around your home uh, to kind of fall-proof your house. Um, and you know these and uh, these these lower limb strengthening exercises, the balance exercise. This is how we protect our bones. Primarily, works way way better than any of the drugs that have come out so far on the market. Well, I can't resist this. You know, when we you mentioned big pharma and all the drugs, and I'm going to mention the word cholesterol, because that's something that cholesterol is a heart disease, right? It is indeed. Okay. Well, I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but I have been subjected to a high cholesterol rating, and the immediate response is to get on medication. And it was interesting in doing some research with a friend that has been a nurse forever. She told me that before certain cholesterol drugs came out, that the actual numbers used to end it, you know, for high cholesterol were very different. And that really... That really made me stop and think, is it, and certainly I'm concerned about high cholesterol. I'm not dismissing it at all, but is it a pharmaceutical-related connection? No, it's diet. It's really diet-related. I mean, high cholesterol is not because you have a drug deficiency. It's because of the diets that most of us eat these days. Um, and so uh, there are three things that raise your cholesterol in our diet. One is saturated fat, which is found predominantly in junk food, meat, dairy. Number two is trans fat, found primarily in processed foods. And third is dietary cholesterol, mostly found in egg yolks. And so by cutting or reducing those down, we can lower our LDL cholesterol, which is a primary risk factor for heart disease. And then if that's not enough, we can add foods to our diet that actually pull cholesterol from our body, like soluble fiber-rich foods. These are kind of slimy foods like oatmeal, okra, eggplant, uh, nuts and seeds can also lower um, your cholesterol. Um, and so absolutely, I don't think, so the first step should always be lifestyle intervention uh, to lower cholesterol before considering the drugs. Uh, but the reason that the no cholesterol numbers have changed so dramatically is because we now have drug trials showing that the lower we can push people's cholesterol, the better. Um, and so before we had the drug trials, we couldn't get people's cholesterol that low. But now that we can, um, it's critically important to, to get numbers down low enough to reduce our risk. And what that means for LDL cholesterol, so-called bad cholesterol, we want LDL for primary prevention, meaning you don't have known heart disease. You just want to reduce your risk of getting your first heart attack. We want LDL under 70 or total cholesterol under 150. And if you already have heart disease, already had a heart attack, really want to push as low as possible, like 30 to 50 or even lower. Um, that's hard to do unless you have a really pristine diet, but it's worth it because heart disease is the number one killer of men and women in the United States. Well, and that leads into, we've got about three minutes left and you've written some fabulous books. I mean, some I know how not to age, you can pre-order now. It won't be out until December of this year, but how not to, how not to die, can you tell us just a little bit about the books? Sure. So How Not to Die is probably my most famous book. Um, it basically talks about the good news. We have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable 
with a healthy diet and other um, uh, lifestyle behaviors. And so first half of the book is just 15 chapters and each of the 15 leading causes of death and talk about the role diet plays in preventing, arresting, or even reversing some of our leading killers. And then how not to die led to how not to age, I guess. Well, so How Not to Die led to the next major book, How Not to Diet, talking about oh. evidence-based weight loss. <laughs> um, and, you know, with so much nutritional noise and nonsense these days, I just wanted there to finally be an evidence-based diet book. And I cite literally thousands of studies digging up every possible tip, trick, tweak, technique proven to accelerate the loss of body fat, to give people every possible advantage, basically build the optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. So that's how not to diet. And yes, how not to age coming out this December, three years in the making, very excited. And uh, I will, uh, and it talks about the various theories of aging, what we can do uh, to slow down the rate of aging, and then um, how to, you know, protect, preserve our mind and preserve our vision and hearing and go through all the organ systems and uh, very excited to I dig deep into the science of longevity. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the, the various organ systems, and so many people don't think of the brain as an organ. It's an organ just like the heart. It's an organ just like the skin. The skin's the largest organ you have. But, and it's amazing to me, if, if I think there's something wrong with my heart, I am going to immediately go see a cardiologist and get it looked at. And Maybe for some of us, if we think there's something, you know, we can't get out of bed, we're overwhelmed, we just are too fatigued to go to work. We just have nasty conversations with ourselves. Suck it up, buttercup, power through. Mm. And those are not the conversations to have. I mean, brain, mental health is brain health. And, and I think of the brain as an organ. And thank you for making that connection for me. I, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show and I want all of our listeners, nutritionfacts.org. There are there are videos. I am more of a audio. I like to, to read. I, you can even look at some of the transcripts from the videos. There's a ton of information out there. I mean, I, it's mosquito season. And so I'm, I, I'm a big opponent. I do not want to use DEET. And now I know what I'm going to do. So... Dr. Gregor, thank you so much for being my guest. It was absolutely a pleasure. You are so welcome. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to coming back. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Brain Performance Center.